Hi, this is Maggie Rose, and you're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. I started this podcast to showcase women in music who inspire me and who I want folks everywhere to know about. My guests are icons in contemporary music, independent artists, studio musicians, hit songwriters, and power players behind the scenes. All of them challenging the status quo, respecting the hustle, and leading the way for women following in their footsteps. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Welcome. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Salute the Songbird. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. I typically like to record these intros when I'm walking around the neighborhood enjoying some decent weather, but I'm sitting on my back porch instead in East Nashville watching this storm roll in, and you can hear that rolling thunder all around me, which is quite nice. So thanks for sharing this moment with me. This week's guest is Nicole Atkins, and she is very rad. I haven't somehow met her, even though she lives in East Nashville as well, and we have a lot of shared connections. She's from Asbury Park, New Jersey, and my drummer, Sarah Tomek, also hails from Asbury Park, New Jersey, and it's such a cool musical town. I grew up playing with a Bruce Springsteen tribute band, so they introduced me to the venues like Stone Pony and Asbury Lanes and The Saint and Wonder Bar. So it's cool to be able to kind of go down memory lane with her and talk about that great musical town. And we also share a producer. Her latest record, Italian Ice, was produced by Ben Tanner of Alabama Shakes, who also produced my forthcoming record. And we both recorded it at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals with a band that was comprised of people that she grew up playing with and people that are part of her posse, and then also Muscle Shoals legendary players. And that's similar to what I did with my project. So I'm excited to talk to her about that as well. Her list of collaborators is so vast and diverse that that's also very much piqued my interest. And I want to talk to her about all these cool collaborations that she's managed to forge over the years. And just from what I've seen, she seems like a really good time, <laughs> like a free-spoken artist. So I'm very excited. Let's get to know Nicole Atkins together. Okay. Hello, hello, hello. One, two, one, two. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Ta, ta, ta. One, two. How do you do? Hey, Nicole. How you doing? I'm good. It's nice to meet you virtually. You too. I've heard so much about you. I feel like I know you. Um, this might, should we, should I plug it in? Nicole Atkins, welcome to Salute the Songbird. We salute you. I'm so excited to talk to you. Cool. Yeah. How you doing? I'm good. I feel like we know each other just because of listening to other podcasts you've done, but we have a bunch of connections and mutual friends. You Your Asbury Park connection first. Yeah. Uh, my drummer is Sarah Tomek and she yeah. is born and raised in Asbury Park and moved to Nashville. She claims you as another talent that hails from that town. And then also our friend Ben Tanner, who produced Italian Ice and engineered Goodnight Rhonda Lee, right? He was also part of that project. He did some mixing on uh, Goodnight Rhonda Lee. Oh, cool. Yeah, Ben's awesome. But yeah, so Ben um, runs Single Lock, the label that I'm on. 
and I asked him before the interview, I was like, do you have any good Nicole stories? And he's like, man, oh God, there's not a dull moment. He's like, you need to give me more notice next time. So I'll get those. I drive him crazy. Maybe they're not for our podcast today. (laughs) No, he's like, I'm good on you. I think I wear him out, (laughs) but uh, I love it. That's our job. That's what we're supposed to do to our producers. He's just very, very chill. Mm -hmm. We need balance. I need chill people to diffuse my craziness and vice versa. For those listening, Ben Tanner is part of Alabama Shakes. He's a fantastic producer. He started Single Lock Records, to which Nicole is signed with John Paul White. And that's based in Muscle Shoals, which is just known for all the fantastic music that comes out of there. But I want to understand, and your story is so awesome. It's well-documented. And I listened to Past, Present, Future Live with RJB. And that's a good podcast. It's amazing. I laughed. And yeah. that is the reason that I got this podcast because I was also a guest on that particular show with RJ. And Osiris is the company that is helping me launch Salute the Songbird. But I do want to go through your story and how you got from Asbury Park to Nashville now and all the exciting places that you were along the way, because your story is fascinating. And you have put many studio albums out and you've looked inward on so many of these projects. But Asbury Park is a city known for all the great music that comes out of there. Of course, Bruce Springsteen and the ones that you would defer to. But what was that scene like growing up in? I grew up in Neptune, which is right next to Asbury. Mm -hmm. So growing up there, like music was just part of the culture. Like every restaurant and bar always had music in it. Right. So I think, you know, when people are like, or did your parents support you becoming a musician? You know, like, of course they did because it's a job. Right. You know, it's like, you know, a viable job where, you know, whether you become the next Bruce Springsteen or you just have like your weekly gig at the bar, that's mm-hmm. a living. So they were for it. Asbury really does feel like a place where it's accepted that there are artists, but then there also are these amazing venues like Wonder Bar and Stone Pony and The Saint mm-hmm. and Asbury Lanes and all these cool spots. So do you feel like it took away the stigma of being a musician? Because I didn't have that growing up. I didn't feel like there were places that I could just pop into and perform at. I guess it, in, in that way, yeah, it did. It just became like, you know, I remember the first gig I got was... I worked at this like really cool little restaurant. It was like a Cajun Tex-Mex hybrid restaurant that only had like 10 tables in it. And like we had every week this guy, um, Billy Hector, who was a big blues guy play and String Bean and the Stalkers. And um, I played like in high school coffee houses and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would never give me any waitressing shifts. I was a bus boy. <laughs> and then like I got up with the band one night and sang and the guy's like, well, you know, you should just play here once a week. So instead of like, and that's kind of how it's always been like, man, you're not that good of a waitress. So it was just kind of like the only job I could ever have and keep, Mm -hmm. you know, like it took me a long time to come around to the music of Bruce Springsteen, Mm -hmm. just because there were so many Bruce Springsteen cover bands. And I was just like, you know, it's just one person like, come on, like spread your mind. Like, Oh, sure. I feel like I would almost have an aversion to it because it feels like everyone's shoving it down your throat. You got to rebel somehow. So <laughs> right. 
the biggest influence I think on me was, you know, the people that own the record shops, mm-hmm. like my uncle turned me on to like traffic and cream and yes. And so the guys in the record shops, there was a uh, place called Silvertone Records that had like a Dion and the Belmonts neon sign in the, in the window. And then he was like, oh, you like prog rock? And he would make me like mixtapes that said like deep cuts, you know, weird shit, like golden earring. And then there was a radio station called 106.3 WHTG that played like The Fall and Concrete Blonde and The Sundays and The Smiths and all this really great indie rock, you know, and it was like there was no like mainstream format to it. So I was always calling up the radio station and like requesting songs so they would say my name (laughs) on the radio and be like, you know, we got Concrete Blonde going for Nicole and Neptune. I love that. I remember like meeting Blind Melon at a signing at the Sports Authority and like Matt Penfield from 120 Minutes on MTV. He was our, our local DJ. So I got his autograph and Shannon Hoon's autograph. That's so wild. I just interviewed Leslie Fram, who's the senior vice president at CMT. Oh, yeah. And she was on the air with Matt Penfield for so many years when they were doing the morning show in New York. Um, and he's just an amazing advocate for artists. He still is. And he reigned supreme during the height of the alternative rock movement when it was just like bursting from yeah. the scene. What a cool time to live there. Without it. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was really exciting. And I remember when they got sold, you know, it was just like heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And then like all the radio started changing. It was like Jack FM playing like bullshit. But um, you know, what's crazy is that so my cousin is getting married. And um, last year for Thanksgiving, he's like, yeah, my fiance's grandfather owns the WHTG building and they're selling it. So do you want to come by there and um, get some records? And it was like, if you told me when I was like 16, you're going to get to go into the WHTG office and just get whatever you want. What did you grab? So they were a station since the 50s and 60s. So I got like box sets of jazz and classical music. And I got all the promo copies of uh, Elton John, like all of the Elton Johns. I found, um, I got a Nick Cave in the Bad Seeds and Breeders fanny pack from one of the first Lollapaloozas. Wow. Wow. That's so cool. And I think like with Asbury Park, like that was more of the mystique for me was like when I was a kid in like the very early 80s, my grandfather would take me to the amusement park. And it was like when it was on the decline, Mm -hmm. but it seemed like so amazing And then it was just nothing, but you could still go to Asbury Park with like my grandpa and like go into this like antique store that was just like the only thing open on the boardwalk in the middle of nowhere and nothing and be like, wow, you feel like you're discovering like magic. Now for people who I'm lucky enough to just now introduce you to, I loved this one quote from NPR. They called you the Jersey bred Nashville based theatrical pop singer, which I feel like <laughs> at first when I read that, I was like, well, that's interesting. But then I heard about your time in New York where you were part of Sleep No More, which is like that interactive that show. It was a weird time. How was that? That was awesome. It was a weird time. You know, I uh, sang at their Valentine's Day party because they would always have like, for holidays they would have like musical acts mm-hmm. you know play the after party after the show was over like they'd shut the doors and like you know have like you know some of the daft kings play like a jazz set or they had me play a small like jazz set and then the um 
the producer was like, if you ever want to sing here, like you should. Mm -hmm. And so I just took it as a side gig. It's, and it's funny because I was talking to um, Rachel from Lake Street Dive and she used to do that job too. You have to be part of a cast, an ensemble basically. And you're, you're improvising with the guests walking through this yeah this soundstage right it's it's like a concert yeah. that's interactive and a show it's the story of Macbeth mm -hmm. told through like David Lynch and so there's five floors that you can you have to wear a mask and you can go and explore wherever you want and then when you need to take a break you go to the McKittrick bar which serves absinthe and you can take your mask off so when the blood orgy hanging finale happens Afterwards, we are like, welcome back to the McKittrick. And then I just sing a jazz set, you know, and it's fun. Just the normal Friday night or Tuesday night, whatever. The pay was shit. But yeah. The experience was amazing. And that's where I met Scott Bradley um, that does Postmodern Jukebox. And like, I just remember him being like, I'm doing this, this video project at my house. Do you want to do it? And I'm like, hell no. <laughs> and, then, and then it just got like giant. And I was like, holy crap, man, way to go. Pointing to that quote from NPR, I think that there's a correlation between all your albums. Like you are the common thread throughout, but there's definitely like a thematic shift from one album to the next. And I think that that's just you putting your evolution into your records. Like sonically, you can tell that there's growth that's happened. Like you, you don't feel this obligation to be consistent sonically because I feel like you're someone who finds the excitement in the malleability, the fact that you're a chameleon. Yeah. I mean, I just listen to a lot of different types of music, mm -hmm. you know, and I think at its core, it always comes back to like the classics. Right. But, you know, like slow phaser, like I was listening to a lot of prog rock, mm -hmm. you know, and just really loving that first Peter Gabriel record with like Salisbury Hill on it. And like, you know, and just seeing how, like, you know, I wanted it to be more about the band mm -hmm. than, like, the songwriting, how the songs made you feel rather than, you know, being able to busk a song right. with an acoustic guitar. I think that's kind of the blessing of never having an early on hit. Yeah. You know, you don't get tied to have to keep repeating yourself. So after you left college, you came back to the Northeast and you re relocated mm -hmm. to New York City. So I moved back to New Jersey and um, I went to a fish show for the year 2000 mm -hmm. and got left there. This was before we all had cell phones. I got left there by my friend to hitchhike home. Oh my God. From uh, Florida. It, I hitchhiked home with like this couple that like the dude was like smoking crack and like reciting fish lyrics in a romantic way to his partner. That was very sweet. But I, and they took me on vacation with them. And I was like so traumatized that I was like, I never want to be in this scene or do like, I just like got rid of everything and like started listening to like Elliot Smith and television and big star. <laughs> and then uh, I ran into the guy that owned the Saint in Asbury Park, which is like a little like dive club. And I was like, I want a gig. And he was like, well, we only do original music. Do you write your own stuff? And I was like, oh yeah, of course. And I didn't, but I wrote 40 minutes of music so I could do a set in two weeks. Oh my and gosh. then after that, it just like kind of kicked off. Like I played in this one Irish pub every Wednesday and like I did like Sabado covers and like pavement covers and then my own song. So I got like this cool little weird following. And then um, a friend of mine was like, you should come up to New York to this open mic at the sidewalk cafe. And I went and I just like, was like, 
wow, like I never heard of Daniel Johnston before. Mm -hmm. And like everybody was like, you know, talking about him. And, you know, I saw the Moldy Peaches play and like one of the strokes was there and Langhorn Slim was there and he was like a child. Wow. And I was just like, this is such a weird, cool scene. And the bar was open till 4 a.m. And I got up and I sang one of my songs and the guy that hosted it, his name was Latch. He was like, what do you think? Should we give her a gig? And I got a gig on like my first time there. And it was just so exciting. So like I had a Dodge Ram Charger and I would just drive up every Monday and like sleep in my car. And like my friends and I, like I made all these friends and like ended up moving there and working in a restaurant that again, wouldn't give me a good shift, but they let me book music. What is it about you that is making everybody want to just give you the microphone? I think at that time it was more so like, I knew that I could write songs and I was excited about that. However, I wasn't writing songs I would necessarily want to listen to. So, you know, I was friends with the Ava brothers from college and like I became friends with Langhorn and Regina Spector. And I was just like, I knew that they had found their niche, like Mm -hmm. their style. And I was good at organizing. Mm -hmm. Like, so I was like, I still want to be in the scene and I'm going to keep working on my thing till I find my sound. But in the meantime, I'm going to promote you guys. I just like was good at like putting things together, you know, and like the first show I booked was the, the Avitz, Regina Spector and Langhorn. And like, I like found a guy that like knew a vodka person and I got a, a vodka sponsorship and like the place was packed. And like, I just didn't mind like having a few drinks and walking into a bar with a stack of flyers and meeting strangers mm-hmm. and being like, you have to come to the show. That's amazing. You know, it's fun. I, I think that that character trait about you has served you so well, though, if you think of all these collaborations that you forged over the course of your career, like Elvis Costello and My Morning Jacket and you know, all the people that you just mentioned, Langhorn Slim, Regina Spector, Spoon. I, I mean, it's pretty crazy how you had the balls to just see these people that you admired, that you knew you had something to offer to, you had something in a collaboration that would yield great results and just seize it. Like, where does that come from? You know, I used to be a lot more like shy. I think when I was drinking, I was more shy. Really? You know, like, cause usually it's the opposite. I know. I always thought I had social anxiety until like a year after I quit drinking when I was just like, I fucking love people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love talking to people, Mm -hmm. you know, because I like learning stuff. And it's like if I meet a musician that I like, you know, they're just they're people. Right. You know, like they do what I do. And like, you know, success sometimes doesn't always come from talent. It's really which way the wind blows. You know, I don't know. You just be nice to people and usually they'll be nice to you back. I love your self-awareness that you're like, I'm good at organizing people. These people have galvanized like who it is they are as artists and by being around them, like when did you feel that you had gotten to the spot that you perceive them to be at as an artist and finding your own identity. I think when I made the demos for the parties over demos, Mm. which like later became Neptune city, I recorded them with my friend, David Muller. First we recorded him in this art gallery in Brooklyn called the Deitch space. And he was like living there at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I think he got kicked out of there and we moved into my parents' house and I didn't play lead guitar and neither did he. 
so I just sang all the guitar parts I wanted and stacked them and harmonized them. And so like it got this girl group sound kind of by default. Mm -hmm. So like all of the sounds we did, like it wasn't like, okay, I want it to sound like the 60s or this. It was like I like David Lynch and Tim Burton and my family's Italian and crazy. And like my mom doesn't say like you hurt my feelings. She says things like, well, what if I just die? <laughs> How do we put that into the music? Oh, right, right, you right. Know? And so one of the songs, Party's Over, like I went to a, it was like an after after party in New York. That was like oh, yeah. this Cuban guy with a gun and like all these aging supermodels with mafia people and lots of cocaine. I was like, holy shit, what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. This is crazy. And like, meanwhile, like I end up like having some of something and then I'm in like the main room with the boss and he's like you are funny the boss you know and I'm just like blah 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 and like wrote the song it was originally called nightmare at the Cuban after party that was the original title yeah <laughs> but back to the the style though it was like before that like I would never go and say to people like hey check out my songs but it's like we found a style that was just so like it was something I wanted to listen to and like even like my girlfriends in New York they were like they would always have it on, mm -hmm. you know? And so like, it felt really, I was really stoked on it. And then six months later, I get a call from somebody that's like, you know, I listened to that CD you gave me and I'm just like, I love it. And my sister's a music lawyer and wants to meet you. And I was like, she must be a shitty one if she wants to meet me. <laughs> and then like, where does that come from? Well, just cause you don't think like somebody at like the biggest music firm is like gonna want a meeting with you. Mm -hmm. You know, I like with my music, I did it because like it was fun for me and I wanted to like figure out how to make something that I wanted to listen to myself. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I need to figure out how to get on this showcase or gig. It was just something me and my friends did for fun. Yeah. Like once Regina Spector got signed, we were all like, holy shit, maybe we can too. Right. You know, it was, it was a, it was a scene. It wasn't a competition and it was really fun. That sounds like just that's exactly what it should be like the perfect balance and ecosystem to be a good artist having support having people actualize their dreams who are in your circle and it doesn't sound like you had a bunch of sycophants around you who are like oh everything you're doing is great like my friends gave me so much shit good so you took this meeting she came to my show and i was super late for it i only got to play two oh, songs <laughs> and, and then we met and it was just like after that like you know, I had this guy, Dan Chen, that was a piano player come up to me and he was like, hey, um, I heard your demos. Like, do you need a band? Like, and he like had a band that was already a band, but they didn't have a singer. And so they became my band. And our shows went from like 20, 30 people to like all of a sudden they were like, you know, Steve Lillywhite was there. We're like, you know, the National were there. Wow. It was, it was cool. Yeah, it was exciting. I ate a lot of... Uh, a lot of expensive dinner mm -hmm. but it was crazy though because it's like i still couldn't pay my rent that was like in hindsight affordable and my you know my roommate susan like she had a real job so she like was like you'll be good for it soon but there were like every morning we'd be like okay i'll get the coffee you get the bagel and we'll split it because mm -hmm. yeah times were lean and then i got signed to columbia and it was funny because matt pinfield the dj we had to play a set in the Columbia office. Was he an A&R at Columbia at the time? Yeah. Wild. Yeah, and he wasn't mine, but like he walked in, he was like, dude. And I was like, what's up? No way, did he remember you from? Yeah. Wow, from Asbury yeah. Park days. And it made me feel so much more comfortable.
just knowing like one of my like hometown people were there. Well, and you know that he's a real one. Like he's got yeah. great taste in music. He's proven that time and time again. But there are yeah. a ton of labels who are clamoring to sign you and have you be part of their roster. But was Matt a big reason that you were drawn mostly to Columbia? Well, no, I, I because he wasn't he wasn't the person that brought me over there. Mm-hmm. So, but um, I just remember looking at the at the wall and seeing like Barbara Streisand and Pink Floyd <laughs> and being like, "This is fucking cool. It is. I'm just gonna do this." Like. You know, I just always thought like I'd like put a record out on Bloodshot and like Waitress and get to tour like mm-hmm. once in a while. Did you feel like it started moving at a pace that was hard for you to maintain or like your voice was getting drowned out at any point? No. Well, it moved at a pace that was really slow. Uh-huh. We started doing the record and Lenny Kay from Patti Smith's band was um, our producer. So sweet. And we got about two weeks in. And then, um, man, it was going to be so sweet. Like Lou Reed stopped by the, by the studio and he was like, yeah, if you want, I'll play some guitar on this. Like I didn't meet him, but Lenny told me that. And I was like, oh my God. And then all of a sudden the lights turn off. Um, the president who signed me, he got fired. And then I had another, another A&R person and she got fired. Then another one. Did you feel like the adopted A&Rs that you had to just kind of work with who, weren't the ones who found you, were they not claiming you the way that you felt you deserved to be claimed? Did they not have the skin in the game that those people who had discovered you had? I think that my A&R person was committed. However, I don't want to talk any shit about her because who knows where these people will end up someday. But I'll say that um, she reminded me a lot of like Dr. Evil. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to talk shit about her, but she reminded me of Dr. Evil. In what way? Like, what, is, what does that mean? Well, my boyfriend told me that once he called her or she called him and asked him not to uh, return my calls for two weeks of tour, you know, because I write better songs when we're in flux. And she said something like, don't worry, she'll be able to buy you guys a house. Wow. So, yeah. Like messing with your life. Wow. Yeah. She was a piece of shit. So anyway, though, music wise, so while I was finishing furniture, she did get me in touch with Tor Johansson from Sweden, who yes. produced the Cardigans and Franz Ferdinand. And still to this day, he's a really good friend of mine. So cool. When my third record happened, um, it was during Hurricane Sandy. And he called me and he was like, you know, he heard that my house got destroyed. And oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I moved in with my parents a month before the storm happened and uh, I lost all my stuff, you know, because the neighbor's house blew up and like all of the houses rocked and it fell off the shelves into the water. But uh, he was like, I think you need to make another record. And I was like, well, I don't have a label or any money. And he's like, well, Columbia paid me enough that you get one free. So he made the record for free, which was really amazing. Like, I think, Unbelievable. I mean, that's, that's what I'm most grateful for. in like my music life is like all these different musicians and where they come from and what they do and where their processes are just being able to like learn from them all and be friends with them. Like there's never been really anybody that's a musician that I've worked with that we haven't still kept in touch in some form, even when we've been like, fuck you, fuck you. Like right. it always comes back around. That's masterful, though, because you don't need to burn any bridges. I mean, if you're if you're all right and you're getting to follow your path, then like keep going on your path and don't waste your time 
It takes a while to learn that for sure. Cause you know, well, yeah. when shit isn't working out for you, you're like, what the fuck? You know, mm-hmm. but then after a while, when enough shit doesn't work out for you, you learn to like appreciate all the good shit. <laughs> So where's your head at? You're you're so far from home. You're making Neptune City. I mean, I was in a really bad relationship during that whole thing. I wasn't at my best, but I was in love, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so it was a mix of like the best time ever and the worst time ever. It was the Mm -hmm. middle of the winter in Sweden. Tor was going through a breakup. Martin, the string arranger, was going through a breakup. I was going through a breakup. We were all fucking depressed. But the music was great. And um, I got to go to Stockholm for a few days. And I met my favorite band um, at the time. Actually, they're still one of my favorite bands, this band Dungan. And I MySpaced them. I was like, hey, um, I'm a musician. I'm making a record here. I love you guys. Um, If you ever want to hang out, you know, and they're like, oh, we're having a party. Come on. And like to this day, they're like some of my really good friends. And um, so that was wonderful. You know, we did the record and it was supposed to come out on a certain date. And like I was on my first tour with this band from the UK called the Long Blondes that were really cool. And uh, I got asked to do that Amex commercial, which was hilarious because like I had an Amex that I got when my old band told me if I didn't buy my own gear that I couldn't be in a band. And so I got an Amex and I put an SG and a Blues Junior on it. And then I bought me and my friend Steven matching tie-dye strats because I had a credit card and I was irresponsible. And I racked up all this debt on this Amex. And I was like, shit, if I do this commercial, I could pay the Amex off. It's not real money. Yeah. And I got so much shit for it because like the indie world was like, what the fuck, blah, blah, blah. But meanwhile, it's like, sorry, man, I'm fucking poor. And I'd like to, you know, not be. But the album was supposed to come out the same week as the commercial. And Rick Rubin came into my life and just fucked shit up. Um, Mm. My manager called me from Bonnaroo, where she was at with the National. And she was like, look, I'm going to work on this. We'll get this fixed. The A&R person was like, Rick just wants to put his stamp on it. It'll be better for you in the long run. And Mm. I'm just like, what the fuck? And so the next day, my manager's mother passed away out of nowhere. And so... And what year Bonnaroo is this? What this was 2007, mm-hmm. and I or 2006 even maybe I don't know, but um you know her mom died. I couldn't call her and be like, hey, you need to fix this. Yeah, because I'm not a fucking asshole, right. and like I just had to roll with but it. Meanwhile, your life is really in the balance, and whether you can kind of start anew and yeah. And so this Amex commercial came out, and I was the number two most Google thing in the country because it was during the U.S. Open. And I didn't have a stitch of music online and people thought I was an actress. Why? Because there was no music online because Uh. they like took everything off. And then I didn't hear from anybody for six months. And then Rick Rubin came back around and was like, yeah, so he put some fucking French horn Mm. on a song that wasn't even a single and remastered it. It came out six months later and all my press dried up. So I don't like that guy at all was he just involved in so many other projects or he was he he became the president of columbia and he just you know he works on his own time and we know timing is 
everything, everything. Yeah, timing is timing is everything. And we did uh, when the record did come out, though, we were able to do Letterman and we just we smashed it like we I was like, you guys, we've been waiting for this forever. Let's go out there and play like we're going to fucking die after. And mm -hmm. we did. And then the label was like, OK, you're a live a live artist. This mm -hmm. is your thing. And then, uh, you know, then they signed Adele. <laughs> So they kept kind of saying like, we want you to fill this void and this void. And then they started signing other artists that they were telling you they were looking for. Kind of, but also my my A&R person was like hell bent on like, she's like, you're gonna write the next Alanis Morissette record. Cause I was finally for real breaking up with the guy. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I'm not about writing like, yeah, fucking ex-boyfriend. Like, that's so dumb. Like I'm not into writing cheap shot music. You know, it seems your music is very introspective and and it transcends its escapism. Like, I, I don't hear any pointed lyric that made me feel like, oh, that's not my experience, too. It feels like you're inviting everyone to share in it where it's not overly specific and individualistic. Yeah. And it's not spiteful. You know, it's not like you did me wrong. It's like, I can't and I don't want to make music that doesn't reflect who I am as a person. And luckily, I mean, even like getting dropped from Columbia, like as hard as that was, you know, I've been able to, you know, for 15 years make music that uh, it's almost like, you know, reading a like a memoir, like who I am as a person, which, you know, there's embarrassing moments and there's not any for me on the records. <laughs> uh, what made you after you left Columbia want to move to the South. What drew you to Muscle Shoals and Nashville and all of that? In 2013, um, I met my husband. I was on a tour with the band The Eels, and he was my substitute tour manager for five days. And initially, we were just friends, you know, and uh, we just started talking like every day and just like, I like couldn't wait to talk to this person. Right. And he came back and met me at the very end of the tour and it was just like this whirlwind romance and like mm -hmm. let's get married so we can keep dating right and uh he moved to new jersey and you can ask your friend sarah about this like people in new jersey are pretty rough we all bust each other's balls and even though like i could be a ball buster i'm pretty sensitive and when you're a certain age you don't really go out of your way to make new friends and ryan's just like you know why don't we move somewhere where we can make friends together i love that and i was like cool and we and we couldn't afford new york so he was working with this guy jd mcpherson i love jd yeah jd's the shit. and so jd was moving here with his family and so we we're like all right we like nashville like let's try it and um when we moved here he immediately was out on the road and i was trying to quit drinking and right you know, I didn't have a record in the works and I didn't have a label. And I, I just like, was like, like the beginning of Nashville was like almost my downfall just cause I was like, there's no ocean here. Everybody's a singer songwriter. Where's like, you know, the normal people. Right. <laughs> and, and I ended up, you know, writing Rhonda Lee just from a place of like, it was all, it was the first record I ever wrote that was in the moment. I can usually write about things after they've already happened, but that was just like relapse after relapse of just like, bleh, you right. Know? What was the creation lifespan of that record? Like how quickly did you write all of that material? I love that record, by the way. Thanks. It was probably a year, you know, I started writing it right after I got out of rehab. And then five months later, we moved to Nashville. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I was originally going to make it with Richard Swift. And then he had to cancel because he could, he was too busy with the Black Keys. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when his health started declining too. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine was tour managing Leon Bridges. And he was like, well, why don't you talk to them? Because Leon's record is pretty, you know, like old school. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think they'd want to talk to me, you know, and they were a fan of Neptune City. There's that self-doubt again. Me? You want to see me? I know. People that are like high up on their shit right now, like they might not want to, you know, work with somebody that like has been around for a while. I always feel that too. And I think that, you know, that's just some dialogue that we need to stop. I think that's what business people say to people like us and like nonstop. Like we're damaged goods or some absolute bullshit, which is actually we're we're fine-tuned, we're wise, we're experienced. Yeah. I I was 27 and I got told that I was old. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? (laughs) You know, or like some other person was like, yeah, I think if she lost 10 pounds, she'd be huge. And I was just like, wow, like, you know, the, the, the music business, I mean, there are great people in it, but there are some fucking damaged people in there. You know, it's really good for artists to like have a good community of artists and, you know, normal people around them. Right. You know, what was the name of the group? They were called um, Nile City, mm-hmm. Nile City Sound. And um, it was Austin Jenkins and Josh Block. They were both formerly of uh, White Denim. Yeah. And they uh, were the guys that found Leon Bridges and produced him. Austin pretty much, like, he saved me. You know, That's like, incredible. I was, like, floating at sea. And he, you know, believed in the record and came up with a plan that I could actually afford it. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, help me make a record that put me back on my feet. That record to me is so brave. I love the whole premise behind it. And also there is a bluegrass singer named Rhonda Lee Vincent. She's like, Oh, really? The queen of bluegrass. She's played the Opry before. But when I first saw the title, I was like, Oh, this is cool. It's going to be like an homage to bluegrass. But then I heard your story and it's not at all. Sonically, it's beautiful. No. Psychedelic Patsy Klein, like everything. Anybody named Rhonda Lee actually gets a free copy of the record. So I will we should send her one one next time. (laughs) But it's that old school alter ego. And I have one. Mine is Lucille. Sarah has met her, unfortunately, many times. And awesome. We try to keep Lucille hidden away. But Lucille, it's you putting to bed this chapter of your life and just the story of how some of these lyrics came about and the the light that you drew out of this darkness is yeah really commendable and it sounds beautiful it sounds like thanks a transitional record in, in your life just the content of the songs lyrically yeah even like you know the the title of the record it was gonna be called this one's for Rhonda Lee because mm-hmm. I was like okay I should make like a classic sounding record you know mm-hmm. and um stick to that you know not jump all over stylistically mm-hmm. because I hadn't done that yet. I was in Detroit. I did a gig at uh, the art gallery there and I was at, I went to the cast corridor third man to get some records and mm-hmm. next door they had this place called Shinola and they uh-huh. make like watches and fancy notebooks, but they were like, yeah, we're embossing notebooks. So if you buy one, we'll emboss something on it. And I had this song that I started with Chris Isaac that we never finished. And it kept saying, say goodnight, say goodnight, say goodnight, say goodnight to the band. And it was sounded like a song about kicking a girl out of your dressing room. (laughs) And I like, so I could never like really get behind it. 
And then I sang in my head, say goodnight, Rhonda Lee. And I was like, holy crap. And I asked him to emboss it. And I was like, I'm going to write the lyrics to this song in 30 minutes. And he embossed it. And I did. And it was just like, blah. And it like became the, and then the next day I flew to Texas and recorded the record. Oh my God. How dramatic. It <laughs> was, crazy. it was fucking dramatic. It's you like know? you taking your yourself out of a party, like trying to get your friend who's too far gone. Like it's time to go. That's what I think of when I hear it. Like that's exactly what it is, you know, and, and trying to have a little bit of empathy for them. Cause I remember like the next day when I was drinking, like, and I'd hear like, Oh, like you were so fucked up and you said this to so-and-so and I'd be like, Oh no. Like I wasn't a, well, that's their problem. I was the, sure. I am the worst and I deserve to be drowned. You know, mm -hmm. like, it's like, dude, chill. It's fine. I don't hear that like self-flagellation in these songs though. I hear, I do hear compassion. I hear a little bit of like that eye roll, like, oh, here we are again. But there's still patience with yourself. It's just a really fantastic project. And thanks. I, I love that it did for you what it should do. Every artist should be trying to please themselves too. Yeah. Along with the audience that they're reaching. But like you have to like it and it has to advance you to the next step so that you can keep serving your audience and keep doing what they love to see you do. And I think that's the best thing that it did. Also, like it got me back to work, mm -hmm. you know, like my husband's a tour manager. So like seeing like everybody working and I'm just like, oh, I fucking want to work, you know? I've, and, yeah. you know, once I found single lock and they were like, all right, let's put this out. And, you know, communicating with a smaller label like that is just like, keeps me in control of being able to work as much as I want to, mm -hmm. which is like the best. I love single lock. Obviously I'm biased. I love writing with John Paul White and working with Ben Tanner. And I want to write with John Paul someday. I haven't done that yet. He's really special. I think yeah. you guys would, I can't wait to hear what you would get. I want to be in the room one of those times. Okay. <laughs> How did you find single lock? So when I moved here, we got contacted by their venue that was um, 116 to play a gig. I don't know it. They used to have a venue that was on the main street in Florence. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, cool, playing Muscle Shoals. Like I've never done that. Mm -hmm. And um, I went down there and the guy that was managing it was this really friendly guy named Matt. And he booked us again. And then he was like, so who's putting out your record? I'm like, I don't know yet. And he was like, you should talk to John Paul. He's got his own label. And I was like, what? And so then John Paul heard it and then passed it over to Will Trapp and and to Reed and Ben and Will came over to Nashville and took me to dinner. And it was just like easy. Like they were just like, just down and yeah. I was down. And usually they only put out records that they record themselves. And there was some things that we still needed to be fixed in the mix. And Ben was like, I'll do it, you know? So amazing. So that relationship then led to Italian ice where Ben produced it with you. Yeah. So I sang at Spooner Roldum's birthday party. Muscle Shoals royalty, everybody. Yeah. Spooner is the man. He's played on so many records. Yeah. Like all of them. I'm glad I didn't watch the documentary before I went <laughs> it's there. It's pretty daunting. Yeah. Traffic is like my first favorite band. And I didn't know that David Hood toured with Traffic. So they went to Single Lock and were like, we should do a record with Nicole. Like we hit it off. It was just like comfortable. And then Ben was like, you know, I really want to do this if you want to do this with me. 
And so I was like, can I bring, you know, my friends from like New York and wherever too. So it's not just like, I didn't want it to be like a tribute to stuff that was already done. Like it had to be like me. And um, so everybody was just down and it was just like, we would like go back to like the place we were staying at night and like get high and watch these like traffic videos, mm-hmm. like 1972 somewhere in California and be like, David, let's go. And so like, there's some of the songs like AM gold. The first song was like totally like a traffic song. I love the chord progression. Thanks. In that song too. Just like this, the opening of it is. It's just two chords. Yeah, there's something about it though. Like it gives me Radiohead vibes. Cool. But it's all, I mean, it's it's really special. But tell me and everyone listening about the ensemble that you put together for this record because it's so cool and diverse. Yeah, a lot of people didn't get it. A lot of people were like, "This sounds like a benefit show," and it's <laughs> like, you know, okay, but they're my friends. But the record doesn't sound like that. The record sounds special. So it was Spooner Oldham on Whirly and. Uh, David Hood on bass, um, Binky Griptite from the Daft Kings on guitar, um, Moose, Dave Sherman on piano, and then uh, Mackenzie from Midlake played drums. And we always talked about doing a record together. And uh, Jim Sklabunos from the Bad Seats, who I have a duets band with, played percussion. And it was just like, you know, I was at Jim's house and saw he had a picture of fame on his kitchen wall. And I was like, have you ever been to Muscle Shoals? He's like, no, I've always wanted to go. And I'm like, well, come on. You know, it was like whoever I ran into in between when we said we were going to do the record and when we did it was on the record. Like you just kind of snowballed all these great people and rolled them down to Muscle Shoals. Yeah, I was I was writing a song with Britt uh, from Spoon and he was like, where are you going to record? And I was like, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, that's amazing. I'm like, you want to come? And so like everybody just showed up and they were all available at the same time. And it was a miracle pretty much. That is, it was such a good time. Magical serendipity that everyone could participate and be a part of it. And that you got to bring all these worlds together. I mean, that must've felt so cathartic. It was, it was like a nice bridge of like, you know, the past and, and now, and like, you know, fringe and mainstream and just, Mm. you know, it's just, everybody felt like they walked in nobody knew each other and they left friends that's cool that's how it should be and that's just the magic of making something that everyone is stoked to be a part of the song mind eraser yeah is one of my favorites like it's super trippy yeah album but it has like those classic elements that you expect from a muscle shoals record but it's super it's very contemporary and and I love the name Italian Ice. I feel like that's a nod to Asbury Park and when yeah. your granddad would take you to the boardwalk. Well, the record was going to be called Forever. And then I just thought for a second, like Italian Ice would be a really funny album name. And <laughs> I put it on Twitter and my friend Sam from Asbury Park was like, you won't. And I was like, oh, yeah. No. Oh, Sam is like an awesome theme in your your story, just with Saint and the venue and yeah, he's, keep, he's keeping you tied to your Asbury Park roots, I think. I know. I know. I've been talking to like everybody from Asbury a lot in the lockdown, like all the people that run the venues. You know, it's nice to like even like you grow up with these people and they treat you like a shithead kid no matter what. <laughs> right. But like when the shit goes down, they're the first people to call you. Absolutely. You know? It's a really special place. And it's gone through such a revitalization that oh, I know. you want to see those venues continue to succeed because mm-hmm. they've earned it. They've 
come back from I have. Hell. They were there in the 90s when like my friends' parents wouldn't let them come to my house because they thought mm-hmm. it was dangerous. You know, and, you know, you could only go to like the Sunday afternoon hardcore matinees. Now it's changed. Now you need like a million point two to buy a condo on the beach. No shit. Hindsight, I could have bought a a Victorian house for like 80 grand. And now I can't even afford a lobster roll. Right. (laughs) So the collaborators that you had on this record, just from a writing standpoint, Mm -hmm. are really special. I love your feature with My Morning Jacket. So you wrote Mind Racer with Carl, right? Yes. Carl was the first person I, I wrote with when I moved here. And it was just like, I love writing with him because, you know, we've known each other for a really long time, but like not super close, but like I feel really comfortable with him. The chorus of Mind Eraser or the pre-chorus, I thought was a chorus that was going to sound like a Roy Orbison song, but then he started playing these Radiohead chords under it. And I'm like, whoa. And like, just kind of it's easy to just go into a trance when he's playing guitar and just walk around and pace and then like we're like what is this and I was like it sounds like a blur song you know it sounds like something off of like blur 13 but I don't know what it is but it's fun and I love it you know he can liberate you to from genre find the melody if he's if he's creating this musical bed that just yeah lets you run free I mean that's invaluable yeah, and I always get like a free mini guitar lesson when I write with him. Mm-hmm. So it's awesome. <laughs> What's the next music project? I'm recording um, Italian Ice just with uh, strings and a pianist. Wow. So super stripped down. Oh. And I'm uh, going to make a little film of it. But trying to get the logistics right now at, during COVID times is really hard. Yes. Because my piano player lives in New York. You know, I don't want him to be unsafe and. I don't know. It's a lot of logistics that I hope work out. That's going to be gorgeous. Yeah, I think so. I got my outfit picked out that I really want to wear. (laughs) Then let's make this shit happen already. Come on. And are you doing any like virtual shows? And I know you have the variety show that you've been doing. Yeah, I'm about to kick up my variety show again. And um, just doing like some Zoom shows for people and writing some songs and working on a musical. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And and painting lots of paintings. And hanging out with Ryan, who I heard, does he have a little Irish brogue that I heard? He's he's Scottish. Oh, Scottish. Okay. I love that. Yeah. And he's got a hot Scottish accent. Yeah, I'd be he a rolls. sucker for that. I have to finish with, since this is a podcast that, you know, all my guests are women, I feel like so often our conversations were like blue in the face talking about what the plight of being a woman in the industry is. But I like to end by talking about what the advantage of being a woman in the industry is. A lot of advantages. Our clothes are way better. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like women are just more open in general. So there's a lot more people that we can work with because Mm -hmm. we're less afraid to, you know, talk to people. Right. Go out there and make friends, you know? That's why your circle is so far and wide. I think yeah. it's, it's that warmth, openness, that invitation to be a part of your space. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I know a lot of really warm men too. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say the biggest advantage is that our clothes are better. Well, keep creating and, and doing what you do because it's so fun to watch and listen to. And Thanks. Nicole, you are such a badass. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Maggie. Bye. Bye. That's a wrap. 
You can keep up with Nicole on her socials at Nicole Atkins, and you can also join her Patreon, Natkins Funhouse, and you can find her merchandise and music on Bandcamp. And to keep up with me, my music, and my touring calendar, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at I am Maggie Rose. And here's your friendly reminder to check out my latest release, Do It, and keep your eyes and ears out for upcoming releases as we roll out this new album, Have a Seat. And you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Rose, where you can get exclusive Salute the Songbird content, along with new music, live stream concerts, and more. You've been listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. The executive producers are Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton from Osiris Media and Austin Marshall. And the show is edited and mixed by Brad Stratton. Original music by Maggie Rose. Please subscribe to Salute the Songbird on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. And if you like the show, recommend it to a friend or leave us a review so that others can join the conversation. Thanks for listening, and to close the show, here's Domino from Nicole's album, Italian Ice. 